0: I appreciate you guys uh, coming uh, in today to uh, uh, participate in our uh, semester uh, Q&A. Let me uh, tell you how we're going to proceed. I have up here about 25 questions that were uh, submitted. There are also uh, mics here, here, and here. And if you would like to ask a question from the floor, I will be glad to uh, receive that as well. So what I intend to do is deal with the question If there's somebody who wants to ask something from the floor, you make your way to the mic and I'll take it. Then come back to one of the questions here. If there is no one at the mics, then I'll just continue to respond to the questions that were sent in over the last four or five days. So let's pray together and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and goodness. Thank you for how you love us and care for us. And we ask that this morning's time will be a blessing and encouragement and informative. Uh, that in all things we would bring honor and glory to your name. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll start with uh, probably the most important question I got uh, first. Um, All it has is three words, Duke or Carolina. Well, obviously, uh, that is uh, open to being answered on several levels. Uh, One level of uh, question could be, uh, which is your uh, favorite team of the two? Well, you know, just to be honest with you, pulling for Duke is like pulling for the former Soviet Union. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I, I wish I could be more gentle than that, but it's just not possible. And so I think that kind of handles that uh, question right there. Uh, as far as the question, it, of course, could be put on another level. Uh, who do you think will uh, win tonight? Well, uh, of course, it's uh, to Duke's advantage that it's over there. Uh, clearly, Carolina is a more talented team. Uh, it'll just depend who shows up. Uh, both teams have a, demonstrated that they have a uh, propensity to stay home and send uh, people that masquerade as the team in their place. Uh, especially Duke with Clemson lately, and I uh, will just leave that alone and move on, but I'm sure my Clemson fans here still rejoice in the massacre of uh, Duke that took place down there. Uh, I would suspect that the, it'll be a great game. If a gun were put to my head, uh, I would uh, go with Carolina, but um, I wouldn't uh, want that gun to be to my head, just to be honest with you. All right, uh, to more uh, important things. My wife and I are strongly considering the 2-plus-2 International Church Planting program. I really want to do it, but am examining my motives to make sure they are not selfish. Uh, What would you consider the right uh, and wrong motivations for doing the 2 plus 2? Well, of course, the bottom line for all of us, uh, brothers and sisters, is the will of God and seeking the Lord's will uh, with all of our heart and seeking to be obedient to Him. Uh, I have said uh, since I arrived here, and I'll continue to say it probably till the day that I die. I really would urge you, as you think about God's uh, will for your life, to ask the question not should we go to the international mission field, but rather ask the question why should we not go to the international mission field? And in particular, as I think about this more and more, you have such a great opportunity, especially uh, young in life right now, that, uh, you know, the 2 plus 2 program, what is it? It's a two-year program of study here on our campus and it's a two-year commitment in partnership with the International Mission Board to go to uh, the nations to go to a foreign country and share the gospel Uh, it's a two-year commitment you're not obligated to do anything past that now in many cases uh, God uh, captures people's heart and they do become career missionaries and I rejoice in that but again you're simply making a two-year commitment furthermore because you're in partnership with the IMB, everything is taken care of. I mean, you are, you are functioning just like uh, any other international missionary with the uh, Southern Maps Convention. And, and just to be honest with you, why you would not really, 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 really consider that? I don't know. It's such a great opportunity. And even if God doesn't call you to be a career missionary, you will look at life differently. You will look at the lost differently. Uh, You'll do church differently. You'll be a better minister for having done this. If you're in our college, you have the opportunity uh, to uh, do a degree, uh, one of your degrees, one of your majors or minors in missions, which involves six months on the international mission field, which again, is in partnership with the IMB. They're picking up, I think, two thirds to three fourths of the cost. And again, you're young. Uh, if you're single, you have very few obligations. First uh, Corinthians 7 makes it very clear that there are practical advantages to being single. Uh, when you're married and you have children, you have to ask multiple questions. How do I please the Lord? But also, how do I please my mate? And it's implied, how do I please and take care of my children? But if you're single, you have one question. How do I please and serve the Lord? And I don't think it's by accident that the greatest missionary who ever lived, uh, Christian missionary, the Apostle Paul, was single. And therefore, he was able to do the things that he did because he was single. And so, again, you're making a six-month commitment to go to the nations and share the gospel with people who otherwise might not hear. And so, uh, for me, uh, the only reason not to go or not to consider strongly going is that God just says you are not to go. But again, I'm not convinced that that's what he's doing. And I'm convinced that more and more of us should be going and should be praying about going. And uh, it grieves me that uh, so many seem to place limitations upon how God can use them. And that's uh, how I would answer that particular question. There was one similar to it uh, that I uh, thought I had put right um, uh, beside it. And uh, well, here it is. Uh, there have been different views expressed to me about the call to ministry. For example, I have been told by some that we should expect that God wants each Christian to go to the unreached places of the world unless God deters them. Uh, I think I just answered that. I think you should be open to it, strongly open to it. But again, if God says no, then you don't go. Again, let me put it back into perspective and I'll go on with this question. There are goers, there are senders, there are givers, there are prayers. Okay? All of us are to be prayers. All of us are to be givers. And it is the case that God raises up some to be senders. Uh, You can't go unless there are people back home, to use the William Carey analogy, holding the ropes. So there has to be people who are praying, people who are giving, people who are making it possible. In other words, everybody can't go. So even here, everybody can't go. Everybody shouldn't go. I'm just convinced that more should be going than are going. And I just don't think enough of us are actually saying, Lord, would you have me go to the nations? Six months, two years, and then see where God leads after that. So that's how I would respond. Um, these people would say God just expects us to go and not to be specifically called to a place. This is based upon Matthew 28:18 through 20. Which is implied by the participle go or as you are going. But I I would would argue when I preached on this that because of the imperative, make disciples, the go there has the force of an imperative. He's not really as as you go. He's telling you go. Uh, And that can be grammatically supported, by the way. Is this uh, expected of every Christian, or is it a specific calling placed on some individuals to plant their life among an unreached people group? Do you think every Christian should believe that God wants him to go to these unreached people groups unless prevented? Well, again, I believe that God calls all of us to be great commissioned Christians. And again, what is my assignment? Let's pick on me. I'm not on the mission field. Uh, You all know my heart. I'd be willing to be there in in a heartbeat. It seems to me that at least at this point in time in our lives, God has called Charlotte and me to be uh, senders. We've sent two of our kids, equippers. Uh, That's why I'm here working with you all, training you and preparing you to go out and serve the Lord wherever it is that he calls you. We do, as often as we can, make short-term trips. And so in the last several years, we've been on the international mission field anywhere from four to six weeks at a time. And so we try to participate in that kind of a way. And so, again, I'm not the Holy Spirit. Uh, you just simply need to be obedient to what he calls you to do. Again, I'm just convinced that it's very difficult to defend the fact that in America, 95% plus of the believers are here and we only send, in fact, we don't even send 5%, 5%. I mean, you want me to break it down for Southern Baptists? I do it off the top of my head. Uh, there are 45, approximately, thousand Southern Baptist churches. Okay? We have 5,500 international missionaries. Uh, To just adjust the math just a little bit for my simple brain, just reduce it down to five, but you'll know the difference. Uh, That then means it takes, what, nine churches to produce one missionary? Is that accurate? Am I doing my math right? Nine churches to produce one missionary? Yeah, it ought to get quite... I mean, that's mind-boggling. It's extremely disturbing that that's the case. And so it seems to me that we've got our priorities a bit amiss here. And my prayer is your generation will be better than mine and that you will have a greater passion, a greater sincerity, a greater seriousness about the eternal destiny of men and women. My generation, we talk about it. We just didn't live it out. And we gave our money to Lottie Moon and that soothed our conscience. Um, That's just not good enough. And so I would hope that we would be better. All right, we'll move to a different direction now. Still nobody at the mics? All right. Do you think it is okay for Christians to drink non alcoholic beer, or should they stay away from it also because it bears the stigma of being beer? Thanks. Well, you all know my position and the school's position that we hold to a total absence position here. Uh, I see nothing in the future that will cause us to move away from that. Again, how do I defend my position of abstinence? And uh, I don't try to point out the chapter and verse in Scripture because unlike some of my friends who think it's there, I can't find it. I wish I, I wish I could. It'd make it easier. But uh, for my position, I, I do operate on the principle of wisdom and witness. And therefore, anything, anything. So we'll take the, the beer question, the alcohol question, or the apparent alcohol question, and apply it to anything. Uh, Anything that runs the risk of harming my witness or, seems to me, to demonstrate a lack of wisdom, I think you stay away from. Uh, Andy Stanley wrote a book about uh, the most important question. And the most important question that he raises, and it's certainly one of the most important, is you ask any time you consider something, is this the wise thing to do? And that's a great question. And if you ask that question in the context of whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you ask that question in the context that I become all things to all men, that by all means I might win some, then that will guide you uh, in that particular way. So there's really not a hard, fast answer to that one. Uh, I would just simply say, if you even think it runs the risk of harming your witness, don't flaunt your liberty in Christ. But rather, out of love for those that uh, you wish to reach and wish to influence for good, you you surrender your liberty uh, from time to time for the purpose and the help of the gospel. What is your view of divorcees in the ministry if the divorce took place prior to their attaining of salvation? Uh, Where can I look to research? Well, I didn't. Look at that, so I can't tell you where to look to research, although if you go to building a theological library, the little booklet I've done, I think I have some things there. Also, Dr. Kostenberger has written on this. Dr. Heinbach, Dr. Lederbach, and Dr. Jones, all three could help you with this as well. Uh, this is a fuzzy area as well. I'll just tell you my own thinking, and, uh, you can take it for what it's worth. Uh, I do believe, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, all things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And therefore, there is a clean slate that God graciously gives to each of us once we have come to faith in Christ. Does that mean all actions prior to our conversion then have no uh, continuing influence or effect? Well, of course, the answer is no. Uh, if you're a murderer before you receive Christ, at least according to the law, you're still a murderer after you have received Christ. And they're not going to undo uh, the crime that you've committed because you have come to faith in Christ. Uh, If you are divorced before you were converted, the fact is you will be, for your life, a divorcee. Furthermore, if there are children involved, uh, there are going to be some continuing um, effects, uh, fallout, uh, circumstances that are just part and partial of living life. But though I do not think it is ideal, I do not think I can make a biblical argument that it is wrong. And in fact, I have preached in churches where the pastor was a divorcee uh, either prior to his conversion or in at least one case when he came to Christ, his wife, who was a witch. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that she literally was a witch. And uh, when he became a believer, she flipped out, began to beat him and also cast spells on him and all this other stuff. And then she left him. And uh, he tried to reconcile. It went nowhere. He uh, later married a, a wonderful godly woman they've now been married my goodness as long as Charlotte and I more than 30 years he pastors a church in Virginia uh, I have preached there I would preach there again uh, I have no problem at all with his being a pastor given the circumstances of his divorce and so I believe that if it were prior to your salvation certainly it is possible it could be that there's circumstances accruing to that that would just make it very very difficult but I would not say out of hand that a divorcee could not be in uh, the ministry if it was prior to their conversion or at least in my judgment uh, desertion by an unbeliever with no uh, possibility for reconciliation. How can we as Southern Baptists bridge the generation gap with respect to fidelity to denomination specifically the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and uh, that's a, um, that's not an easy question to answer. Uh, I think Southeastern Seminary is giving it its best shot uh to try to do that. Uh hence uh last week we invite onto our campus in Chapel and at the 2020 conference uh Mark Driscoll. Uh, I don't think it would surprise any of you to know that some people think I am the Messiah for having invited Mark Driscoll here. I am utterly brilliant and uh, am a stellar individual that should be exalted to the highest place, just a little lower than Jesus. Um, Others think I am a compromiser, uh, that I have um, uh, exhibited extremely poor judgment, uh, and that I was utterly foolish for inviting this young, hip, 38-year-old pastor in Seattle who's doing uh, a lot of, in my judgment, uh, superb things. And so um, do I intend to uh, stop doing that? No. No. Uh, I will try to take you all where you are and um, influence you both in terms of younger folks uh, to uh, model for you what I think is good ministry. But then also I'll bring in uh, older folks as well because uh, the the Bible teaches us that with age comes wisdom. And, And one of the things young people always struggle with, and I struggled with it when I sat where you sit, Uh, is thinking that we have come to know everything and understand everything and that the older folks really are not not much value anymore and it would be good for them just to go ahead and, and to move off the scene. In the biblical world, you would never think like that. In fact, in the biblical world, it is the aged man and the aged woman that are greatly honored, revered, and respected. Uh, And the fact of the matter is, you all can learn from the fathers in the ministry. And one of the things I'm trying to do to the best of my, I'm 52 now, so I'm kind of moving into the, uh, in fact is, for most of you, I could be your father. Uh, Given your age, I would be old enough uh, to be your dad. And so I don't relate to you like I used to relate to students. When I was uh, here the first time in my 30s, I tended to relate to the students more as an older brother uh, because that's what I was. Uh, Now that I'm 52 and you're in your 20s or even approaching your 30s, uh, you're young enough to be my children. And so when I relate to you, I I tend to think more in the category of a father. And how would a father who loves his children try to guide and direct and instruct uh, those that he cares for very, very much? Uh, Johnny Hunt is our new president, working very hard to try to bring more of you all into um, active participation in this family that's called the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, let me say it to you this way. Part of this burden falls on your shoulders. In other words, we can't pull you in unless you're willing to come. And so what I would challenge you to do is wherever it is that God places you in ministry, you be active. In your state convention, you be active in attending the national convention. You get involved in things because the fact is, if you're not sitting at the the table, we're not going to hear your voice because you're not there. But then you'll complain that we're not hearing your voice. Well, that's a bit hypocritical, isn't it? That you're, you're, you're whining and complaining because we won't listen to you, but you're not there. I mean, there's just something really wrong with that scenario. And so what I would say to you is, if you believe in what we're doing, and I do, again... I could chase this a long ways. I'm not going to. Uh, Do I think our denomination has all sorts of flaws and problems and shortcomings? Yes, I do. I think we have enormous weaknesses and and problems. At the same time, do I think, by God's grace, it's the best thing going? Yes, I do. If I didn't, I wouldn't be a part of it. Uh, I talked to a young pastor about a year ago. And uh, he looked me in the face and said, why should I lead my church to be active in the Southern Baptist Convention? And I said, well, obviously your question indicates that you have a lot of problems with the Southern Baptist Convention, although most of his problems were more out of ignorance than what he actually knew. It's more secondhand kind of thing, but that's all right. I said, well, I can give you two reasons why I think you would be wise to be involved in the Southern Baptist Convention. Number one is theological education, and number two is our International Mission Board. We do things together that you could never do by yourself. And by being a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, you're able to touch the world and get into places that you could try for the next two decades and you would not be able to get there. And so just that alone, I think... Makes it worth working with the convention, being involved in the convention, trying to bring your influence to the convention and bringing a younger perspective to the table that also respects the wisdom of the fathers who have been doing this now for 30 and 40 and 50 years. It's just like a family, brothers and sisters. When all the family gets together to make a decision, we make better decisions you don't want to exclude anyone. And so I don't exclude you all. I want you to be involved and I want to see the generation gap kind of bridged in a more healthy and genuine way, and that would be my counsel to you as to how that potentially could be done. Dr. Aiken, I'm taking Dr. Keithley for Creation and Providence and would like to know what has influenced your view of an ancient earth. Well, whoever sent this question uh doesn't know my view, but I'll come back to that. Maybe you could forward me a bibliography or a book title so that I can begin research on this extremely important issue. Um, all right. Uh, my own view is I do hold to a six-day, 24-hour creation. That is my view. However, I do not take a strong view on the age of the earth so it would not be accurate to call me an old earther or, as is here, uh, one who advocates an ancient view uh, in terms of the age of the earth. That's not accurate. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if you put a gun to my head and I had to make a call, I lean toward a younger earth, uh, not six to eight thousand years old. I just do not think that you can defend that. Uh, I would be more along the lines of a 40 to 50,000 year old universe. Uh, But here's the deal. Uh, What is the position of this school? Uh, This school doesn't take a position on the age of the earth. We do take a position on the historicity of Genesis 1, 2, 3, and following. In other words, we have no professors here that do not believe in the historicity of Adam and Eve and the fall. We all believe that. I suspect that on this faculty there are some young Earthers, and I suspect that there perhaps are some who hold to an ancient view of the age of the earth as well. What I often say is this. If Genesis 1 is correct, then God created in a matter of six days a fully operational universe. If that is so, then there may be a sense in which we will never be able to accurately ascertain the age of the universe. Furthermore, if you read the scientists, they uh, are not of one mind. Uh, You've got people now arguing that the universe may be as young as 10 to 12 billion years old. You've got others more traditionally 15 to 20 billion years. That's a lot of. A lot of, uh, you know, wiggle room brothers and sisters, but that's where they are. And so uh, I don't even find science uh, to be, uh, at this point, compelling in terms of what they would even argue uh, is the age of the universe. If you want a book on this, at least from the ancient Earth perspective, again, if you'll go to uh, the Building the Theological Library book, which we sell at the bookstore, it's online, so you can go there, perhaps the, the major advocate of an ancient Earth Uh, but non-evolutionary, is Hugh Ross. And uh, Hugh Ross has uh, written a couple of books, The Creator and the Cosmos, Creation and Time, and those would be very good uh, treatments and representations of those who hold to uh, an ancient earth, an older earth, and yet do so without embracing uh, theistic evolution. Uh, I don't... I, in no way, embrace macroevolution. Uh, I do embrace microevolution, but microevolution just means there's change within species. Uh, I often say fondly, and now with a heartbrokenness, uh, that there are people who have a real dog like Charlotte and I had for ten and a half years. We had that big, great Dane named Samantha. That is a real dog. On the other hand, some of you, for some reason I will never fathom have these little rat looking things that have had a bad hair day and you think that's a dog. Um, from my perspective, it doesn't look anything like a dog at all. It's just a rat that's having a bad hair day. But according to any uh, student of, uh, of, of dogs, no, that's a dog. And, and the point is, there are big dogs and there are little dogs. But dogs always produce dogs. And they don't produce anything else, and there can be great variety within a species. But to this point, and I try to be fair. That's why Ken Keithley, you know, he he and I really are kind of in the same ballpark. Where he says I am a I am a um, cautious, sometimes reluctant uh, young Earther because I do think some of them strain the evidence. And guys and gals, we do a, we do no one any good or any service by not being fair and honest with the evidence. And so as I look at the biblical revelation, which is always prior and is the ultimate authority, and then I gaze at science, I certainly want to look at it, listen to it, study it, and hear what they're having to say. And uh, Kurt Wise, who now teaches at Southern Seminary, who used to be at Bryan College, who has a Ph.D. from Harvard and studied under Stephen Gould, uh, is a young earth creationist. Now, he holds to a creation less than 10,000 years old. But he will tell you, are there some serious problems with a young earth model in terms of science? Yes. He will also tell you there are some massive problems with an ancient earth as well and an ancient universe. And he says science still has so much to do, there are many, 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 many questions yet to be genuinely resolved and addressed. And so we acknowledge that and simply say, because we believe the Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of God, we believe that God created ex nihilo out of nothing All that is, we do not believe in uh, the eternality of matter. Furthermore, we believe that the Bible teaches that God created directly and uniquely and specially uh, a man by the name of Adam and a woman by the name of Eve. We do not believe they evolved out of some type of ape species. And we also believe in a historical fall that all of us are genuinely related to because they are the mother and father of all of us. And from there, I think there can be some room for differences of judgment and opinion that I would not deem as essential, though. Again, about every month or so, I'll either get a phone call, an email or a letter uh, from someone wanting to know what is our position with respect to creation. And if we do not hold to a six to seven thousand year old earth, 24 hour, six day creation in that context, then we're liberals. I find that irresponsible and I would not accept that, that judgment about who we are. All right. Dr. Aiken concerning the various methodologies that Christians use when doing apologetics which approach would you typically embrace evidential classical presuppositionalism or another approach. Thanks. Well uh, I'm eclectic. Uh I take advantage of each of those approaches. You say why? Well because the Bible does. I'm a presuppositionalist just like Genesis 1 in the beginning God I don't think you can get any more presuppositional than that. In other words, there's no argument there for God's existence. He just starts with God. Well, that's presuppositionalism. And my uh, friend Al Mohler is a strong, strong presuppositionalist, which often is um, uh, a a part of the Reformed tradition of thinking. So it doesn't surprise me that he is there. At the same time, I also accept uh, the evidential approach. What did Paul do in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he gives evidences for I just the argument gives evidences for the resurrection. And so he likewise uh, takes a evidentialist approach as to, for that matter, the gospel writers who argue for an empty tomb, who make the amazing argument that women were the first to see the resurrected Lord, even though their testimony was invalid and no one would have accepted it. And so evidentialism is also found to be utilized by the biblical authors. Then go again to um, Romans one and two. And you have arguments there that are very congruent with our classic arguments for the existence of God, such as the cosmological, teleological, uh, ontological, and then either we call it the anthropological or moral argument for the existence of God. Now, do I think those evidences prove God? No, but I do think they demonstrate that we have good reason for believing that God does indeed exist. And so for me, I take more of a neglectic approach, uh, seeing that there are values to the presuppositional approach, foundationalism, also evidentialism as well. So that's how I do that. I get asked this every time. I probably ought to put something up on the Web page about it. What do you think about multi-site churches? Do you think that the site should be church plants functioning, functioning as local autonomous churches? Well, uh, this is not an area where I am completely without bias. You say, why? Because my son, Jonathan, who's in Louisville, is the pastor of Highview Valley Station. And Highview is one church, six or seven? Seven? One church, seven locations. So I have a dog in this fight. Uh, He is my second twin. Uh, Furthermore, I have very dear friends that have spoken to this far more eloquently than I, such as John Hammett. Uh, who has done so recently in his class here uh, at the seminary and this renegade pastor over in Durham by the name of J.D. Greer. And so we've got J.D. over there and he blogged about it extensively recently uh, in terms of his defense for the multi-site church. And I don't know for certain, but my, uh, because I haven't looked at it any more deep than that, uh, I think that he and John may have some differences of opinion. Furthermore, uh, one of my very uh, uh, respected friends that I hold in high regard is Mark Dever. Mark is adamantly opposed uh, to multi site churches, but then last week we had Mark uh, uh, Driscoll here, and they're now like one church, six locations, or one church, eight locations. So with all of that, what is the first thing we always do, brothers and sisters, we go to the Bible and we ask, does the Bible speak to this issue? And I think when you look at the New Testament, at least by implication, you have to come away with an understanding that in the early church, in particular cities, you had multi-site churches. Because as the body grew, where were they meeting? They were meeting in homes. Once they reach a certain size, they all cannot meet in that same home. So by now, you've got churches meeting in two, three, four, and as the church continued to grow, meeting in multiple homes. So having a multi-site Church, I think, is, is biblically defensible. Now, we're trying to be biblical. Here comes the next question then. What are the essential marks of the church? And I think the essential marks of the church, of course, following Calvin and Luther, the word rightly preached, the sacraments, we would call them the ordinances, properly administered, and then as a Baptist, regenerate church membership a disciplined body, and I believe a Great Commission priority. So those five things have to be present. And, now here's where we go, I think those things have to be present at each location. In other words, can you have an authentic church where at that particular location there are not functioning elders? No. No. That local gathering has to be able to do everything Any local church would do. Now, does that rule out the uh, use of uh, video technology? No, although I think you have to be careful there uh, because you don't really want to build it. Now, I'm going to be pragmatic for a moment. You don't want to build any church around a personality, uh, the superstar Bible teacher. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that, uh, such as what J.D. does, such as what Mark Driscoll does, such as what Andy Stanley does. Although when uh, and I won't pick on Andy, I will pick on another guy who will remain anonymous. When you say that you have a multi-site church and one of your churches is in in South America. I'm sorry, I I don't see how that works. Uh, That makes maybe you're a network of churches, but to say that you're multi-site and you've got churches all over the world to me, that's just nonsense. Uh, you've got to have in place at that location those who are qualified to teach First Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, Titus 1, Acts 20. And you've got to be able to do all the things a local body of believers should be doing according to the biblical uh, mandates and the biblical uh, parameters. And so I'm open to it. Uh, I think we have to be very careful and judicious in the way we do it. At Highview, uh, they're, they're the, the antithesis. Uh, each of their six locations has on site a teaching pastor who is their pastor. Now, they also network together and meet together, and also once a quarter, all six churches come together for the Lord's Supper, for worship for the conducting of church business, so that they do function also in that regard like a single church. And so they're kind of a hybrid with teaching elders, deacons, the whole thing at each location that function in a real sense autonomously and yet not to completely autonomously because all of the elder leaders are also meeting weekly and uh, uh, strategizing and planning and encouraging coming together at least once a quarter for corporate worship from all parts of the city. Do I find that to be a, a good model? Yes, I do. And that would be the one that I would most quickly commend without denigrating the others. Uh, Doctor Aiken, with the 20th uh, anniversary release re-release of the Gospel According to Jesus, what does the seminary stand in the Lordship debate? And what bearing does this discussion play on international missions? Well, I don't know if all of you are familiar with this, but John MacArthur, back when I was first starting to teach, I guess that would have been in the late 80s, wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus, uh, which advocates what is called Lordship Salvation. Uh, It was written in response uh, to a professor by the name of Zane Hodges, who had written this, if I can remember, uh, uh, Absolutely Free, Grace and Eclipse. The Gospel Under Siege. And in those books, Dr. Hodges argues that repentance is not necessary for salvation. Uh, he argues that uh, you should simply challenge people to have faith to believe the Gospel. Uh, in fact, uh, in a debate with him that I engaged, uh, he said that uh, faith is intellectual assent to the Gospel proposition and it does not involve trust or commitment. To a person, you simply believe uh, the gospel, like I guess I believe these lights are very bright right now, shining up here, and um, that it does not involve the will. All right. Having said that, the school does not officially have a position, though I would argue that the of principles and the Baptist faith and message would certainly uh, push you toward a lordship salvation view. In other words, do I believe that that repentance is absolutely essential to salvation? Yes, I do. And I think to deny that, it may not be heresy, but it's certainly a serious, gross theological error. Uh, I'm fond of saying uh, when he came preaching, the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth was repent. When Jesus came preaching, the first word out of his mouth, repent. When Peter preaches on Pentecost, the first word out of his mouth, Repent, And so how you could argue that repentance would not be a part of the uh, conversion process, repentance and faith, based upon the biblical witness, takes some incredible theological gymnastics. And so now, having said that, Dr. MacArthur, in his typical polemical way, can sometimes uh, overstate the case to make his point. And so if you read the gospel according to Jesus and you don't read it sympathetically, you could almost come away with, uh, and I think it would be a wrong reading, a false reading. But you could come away thinking that he had said or that he was advocating that works are essential to salvation. And he does not do that at all. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, John, takes the same view as Luther and Calvin. Uh, one or the other, I quoted it the other day, but I forget which one. But one of the, Luther, Luther said, we're not saved by uh, faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that does work. Calvin said we are saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by a faith that is alone. And I think that's absolutely accurate. In other words, we need to read Ephesians 2.10, don't we? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so are good works essential for salvation? No. But are they the necessary corollary and outgrowth and outliving of salvation? Yes, it is. And so I, again, believe that it's very difficult to confess. Well, what does Paul say? If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. Now, again, the anti-lordship guys, the free grace guys will say, well, all that means is that you're acknowledging that he is God. Okay. If you're acknowledging that he is God in your life, now, what does that mean? Does it just mean, oh, yeah, he's the deity? No, 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 no. You're acknowledging now that he has the right to be the ultimate authority in your life now and forever. That's what it means. If you're truly confessing him as your God, as your Lord, then it entails much more than an intellectual assent that he is the deity. That, again, in my way of thinking, is simply nonsense. Uh, I have a question here about the shack. Uh, the, not Shaquille O'Neal, The Real Shack, but the book, The Shack. Uh, real quick answer, uh, would I commend the book, uh, to you for your edification? No. Uh, do I think Lifeway should have censored the book and not had it in its bookstore? No. I don't believe in book censorship. Uh, both Al Moeller and Mark Driscoll have excellent, uh, critiques and reviews of The Shack. Uh, Mark's by video, Al's by uh, writing, and so I would commend it to you. Uh, I do think uh, that the the book has some serious uh, theological issues that make it problematic, and therefore um, I could not commend it. I would not recommend it. I would not have a class in my church where we work through it, but uh, being where you all are, it may be incumbent upon you to read it, uh, so that you then can provide a critique of it. There are certainly some good things in it uh, and some uh, very encouraging and inspiring things, but that is almost negated by what is borderline heresy in it as well. And so I would encourage you to look at what Dr. Moeller and, Doc, and, and Pastor Driscoll have done. I am not accusing you of neglecting your family. That's a nice way to start a question. But how do you keep a strong marriage on the road so much? Do you really believe that William Carey was right uh, in the way he treated uh, his family in India? Thanks. Well, let me work backwards. Uh, Do I think Carey could have handled the situation better with his first wife? Yes. Uh, Clearly, she had some real issues and some real emotional. Let's be fair here. How can I say it? She was easily depressed, and uh, her emotions were easily thrown out of whack. I think history would demonstrate that. And then when their son died over there, she just, she lost it. She just lost it and even moved to try to have him, she tried to kill him a couple of times and finally had to be confined uh, to her bed and then eventually she died. So, do I think that he probably used the best judgment in terms of how he cared for her? No. I think he could have done a better job. Uh, my own case. Well, I'll be the first to admit that I have not done it perfectly. Uh, I look back over 30 years of being married to Charlotte and having the boys for 28 years moving down. And there are things I wish I would have done differently, uh, both in terms of time and and, uh, some other things. But I think I can say this, and I think they would agree. First of all, outside of Jesus, I think Charlotte has always known uh, that she is the dearest thing in the world to me. And I love her dearly, and she is a precious, wonderful gift to me. I think my four sons know that I just, uh, I hold them in such high regard. They're such a precious treasure to me. And they've always known that I care deeply about them in that kind of a way. When I was younger, or when we were younger, I didn't travel as much as I do now. Uh, I did still travel a lot, and there were a couple of times when I think I made some mistakes and let my, my, my calendar and schedule get out of control, but especially during the junior high and then the high school years, uh, I would get all the guys are very athletic and sports. If you've been around us, you know, in addition to Jesus and the church and the Bible, sports comes in down the road. But we, we're we're pretty serious about sports. And so what I would do is I would get my calendar and I would get their schedules, if I could, six to nine months in advance. And I would write in all of their ball games. And I would not take anything. I don't care if it was an invitation to speak at the White House. I would not take anything uh, over those scheduled games. And I would even work very hard to work around it. And I'm not I'm not doing this, but just to tell you what's in my heart, Timothy, when he was playing football, uh, had a game one Friday night. And I was supposed to speak in Huntsville, Alabama, the next morning at 8 o'clock. I stayed and watched his game that ended about 1030 and then I got in a car and I drove to Huntsville, Alabama, getting there about three, three thirty in the morning to speak at eight o'clock so that I could honor my uh, commitment that I had actually made before I got his football. I would have never done that. That's what's that's a moron that would take, you know, something like that. But I'd already committed to it. Friend really wanted me to come, and so I did my best to try to juggle it in that kind of a way. But what I would say to you is, you just need to take control to the best of your ability of your schedule, block off time for your mate, block off time for your children, and unless something of a uh, of a serious emergency comes along, it just doesn't get knocked out of the uh, out of the saddle. You you honor that. Uh, Jonathan, the one that's at Southern, that's working on his Ph.D., one day said, you know, now that I'm working on my Ph.D., and I'm a pastor, and I'm a daddy, and I'm a husband, uh, I'm kind of amazed that you did what you did when you were working on your Ph.D. because I don't think any of the four of us really feel like we were neglected. And the fact is, I would be working in my little garage study. We had a, a, a it was actually closed in where my study was, and they, they were very good. They knew if Dad was in there working, they needed to kind of stay away. But every now and then, they would come in and say, Dad, can't you just come play for a minute? And I don't have any memory of saying, no, I've got to do this, now you go on. No, I I would put down my pen. And I would go out in the backyard, and if they wanted to play whatever they were doing, I'd hang out and just mess around with them. I could always come back and pick back up with my studies. But I've now learned that there comes a time when your little boys become young men, and they leave your house, and they may like even go all over the country, and that precious time that you just, you know, took for granted is gone. And so take control of your calendar. Make sure you honor Jesus above all things. Make sure you spend the time you need with your maid and your kids. God will bless you and honor your ministry and that you'll be a blessing to them as well. Okay, I have a question over here. We'll take maybe this and we'll stop. You know, reach out to the community. Okay. So, as far as like, you know, the Hispanics and African Americans. Well, how do you get your church to quit looking uh, lily white and uh, more like what the church will look like in heaven? Which is a great question that we should all consider. And again, uh, your generation, I think, will make headways that my generation did not. I think the first thing you have to say is you don't want to force it. In other words, you just can't force. People to come together. It ought to be something that happens because people sense that they are loved and wanted and uh, that that uh, community wishes to embrace them. Uh, Secondly, what I would say is one of the most effective things is going to be to have multiracial leadership. In other words, if I were starting a church from scratch uh, and I was in an area where there was significant racial diversity, uh, I would do my best to build leadership that. Uh, was racially diverse, recognizing that just by the way things work, white people do tend to attract white people, black people do attend uh, to attract black people, Hispanics, Hispanics, and I would make them a part of the, of the family, the leadership team, and uh, recognizing then that uh, that will have a cross-pollinating effect where eventually we don't think of our, our leadership as being black, Hispanic, white, Asian, they're just our, our church, they're just our leadership team. One of the things I enjoyed one time in going out to uh, John MacArthur's church, Grace Community, is it's incredibly diverse. Now, to be fair, as John said, this is just who we are. I mean, this is just L.A. And so you've got whites married to Hispanics, whites married to Asians, blacks married to Asians. He said it's just that's L.A. And so the issue of trying to. Forced racial diversity has never been an issue. It just naturally happens. And I rejoice in that. Being here in the Deep South, uh, it's different. And uh, therefore, we have to uh, be, I think, a bit more intentional in this regard. I would say this. When I was here the first time, a student came to me and said, our church constitution says, and it actually said this, he showed it to me, that no niggers are allowed to join this church. He said, I didn't know this when I went there. He said, "Uh, Dr. Aiken, is that a hill worth dying on? I said, that's not only a hill worth dying on. That's a hill worth taking lots of bodies with you. I said, "Uh, the gospel's at stake. And so, uh, yeah, you've got to have that change. He said, well, I think if I try to get it changed, they will fire me. I said, well, is it worth it? He thought for a moment and he said, "Um, yeah, it's worth it. And they did fire him. They did fire him because they were a bunch of racist bigots who had a little social religious club, but they weren't a church and probably most of them are dying and going to hell anyway in there. So uh, you know. Um, you know I'm just sorry, I, I have no patience for this. And so having said that, you still have to be wise. Uh it's just like church discipline. A cram course in church discipline in your church is a formula for disaster. Should the church exercise discipline? Absolutely. But you've got to teach your people and prepare your people to begin to do that in a biblically authentic way. Well, the same thing would be true in terms of racial diversity. If you've got a, and again, this cuts both ways. I've been in, I've talked to black brothers that are just as sometimes resistant, uh, as, um, although I have to say this, I've never been in a black church in my life that, that did not treat me with the highest degree of honor and respect. Tragically, I can't say that's been true for my black brothers who've come to white churches, and that's to our shame. But having said that again, this is not something that should be forced. It should be something that naturally occurs because of the authentic preaching and teaching of the gospel, that we do recognize that we are family, that we are brothers and sisters, and that heaven will not look segregated. And therefore, we should strive, given wherever we are demographically, to reflect what heaven is going to look like as well. Okay? Did somebody come over here? Okay. One more. This is it. We'll stop right here. what we're doing to make Southeastern's leadership more diverse. Well, um, let me say it to you this way. When I was at Southern Seminary with Dr. Moeller, my, my best friends, uh, we were the... First seminary to hire an African-American as a dean, first seminary to hire an African-American as a uh, vice president, first seminary to uh, tenure an African-American. And so we worked very intentionally to do that. And to Al's credit, he's just recently appointed both a husband and a wife. One is dean of women, one is dean of uh, men uh, that are both African-Americans. My uh, radar screen is always wide open looking for um, qualified minorities that I could add to our faculty and to our leadership team. Unfortunately, uh, because of uh, prejudice and because of disadvantages uh, and because to our shame, uh, liberals for many years were far more uh, racially sensitive and actually function more like Christians in this era than did weak conservatives, to our shame. And so the fact is, for the longest of time, a number of uh, minorities were, were, were even fearful of coming here uh, or to any of our schools. So what I'm trying to do is tear that bridge, uh, tear that barrier down. Uh, and what I've done is, um, when I meet, as I have, uh, very gifted, uh, very uh, intellectually uh, gifted African-Americans, I push them to get their Ph.D. I push them. I push them. I, get, your, get your Ph.D., get your Ph.D., I, I mean, I just hammer it. And I tell them, if you will, I will strongly consider bringing you on our faculty or bringing you to our school. I would never insult my black brothers and sisters by adding a token Black man or woman who does not meet the qualifi I would never do that. That would be insulting. Uh, I want someone that, if their skin were some other color, I would want to hire them because of their qualifications. The fact that they happen to be black or Hispanic or Asian just makes it all the better in terms of reflecting to you all and to a lost world what we believe the church and a Christian community ought to look like. So I'm doing my best to try to recruit uh, African Americans, Asians, Hispanics here. When I find those that are very gifted, I encourage them. I, I try to, in fact, we provide uh, additional scholarshiping if they need to, I'll, I'll do anything I can to try to help them overcome the disadvantage that so many of them had. Let me say this and we will stop and I'll pray. When I was at Crystal College, I had a student come to us that came out of the gang culture of Chicago. He had the scars all over his body to prove that he'd come out of the gang culture. Craig was in my New Testament class the first semester, and I bet I uh, utilized 10 red ink pens on his papers. I mean, I bloodied those things up one side and down the other. I did not grade him as if he were a disadvantaged black man out of Chicago. I graded him like I graded everybody else. To his credit, he'd come back and say, thank you, Dr. Aiken. I'm going to keep working harder. Well, here's what happened. After the first year, when he could hardly write a complete sentence and misspelled things all the time. The second year, I suddenly recognized he's putting his sentences together quite well. In fact, some of his uh, sentence uh, structure and paragraphing is quite well written. Third year, he's there. He buys himself a computer, doesn't, you know, uh, uh, ask for a handout. He goes out, works by himself a computer. Fourth year, he's there. He makes the dean's list. And now when I read his papers, I hardly put a mark on them. This man was brilliant. He had an incredibly gifted mind. But in God's providence, he had been born into the inner city of Chicago with all sorts of disadvantages. In fact, what I like to say is he had uh, both hands tied behind his back with a broken bat and two strikes against him. And yet by God's amazing grace, God saved him. God brought him to a school that would give him he would never get into anywhere. else. I mean, he didn't have uh, the qualifications in terms of, you know, the SAT, the ACT. He wouldn't get in anywhere. But like here, we'll take anybody because we believe conversion has a real good way of changing your motivations and the way you do things. You know, some of you were just like me. a sorry. Good for nothing. High school student. But God saved you. Now, oh, my goodness, now what do I do? Well, you do all that you do for the glory of God. He did. He excelled. And my suspicion is there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Craig's out there that we ought to be very sensitive to reaching out and trying to bring in. Again, I don't agree with all of his politics back there. You know, I don't, especially the moral issues. But it is a good thing that Barack Obama got elected president for the black community. Because as it was said the night he was elected, the next day, or the next day after he got elected, little boys, little black boys in schools across America weren't saying they wanted to be up, grow up to be a, a gangster rapper. I'm going to grow up and be president. That's a much more noble ambition, and I rejoice in that. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time. I love this school. I love my brothers and sisters. They are a constant blessing and encouragement to me. May we be faithful always to bring honor and glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe,